Here, how about that? There we go. Okay. Well, that might be a little bit loud. There we go. Thank you. All right. Good morning. Um, as Pastor Jason mentioned, my name is Elena Zemke. Uh, most of you know me. Uh, I, hope, I hope so, anyway. Um, and I am honored to be bringing you the message this morning. Uh, so I'm going to start out by asking a question. Who knows you? It's kind of a broad question, right? There are levels of knowledge. For example, I have 356 friends on Facebook, most of whom, if you ask them, do you know Elena Zemke, would say, sure, I know Elena. We went to high school together. Or, yeah, I know Elena. Uh, Our kids are friends in school. Uh, That's not quite the same as what I'm talking about today, though. How many people could you say really know you? Maybe your spouse, maybe your parents or your siblings, maybe your best friend. I'm talking about the people who are your inner circle, uh, who've been with you through your major life transitions, through thick and thin. They've seen you in your grubby clothes. They've seen you uh, when you're ugly crying over a movie or something, or they've been with you and held your hand when you've had really bad news. These are the people who understand you, and they can probably anticipate how you're going to react in a certain situation. They know you, right? But even with our closest relationships, there are some things that other, people's, other people will never know about us. We have things, our, our innermost thoughts and feelings that we never share with another person. And it's fair to say, in general, that no other person can know us as well as we know ourselves. But Psalm 139, which is someone who knows us even better than we know ourselves, and that, of course, is God. And there are several uh, important things that we're going to talk about as we discuss this psalm that have to do with God's knowledge of us. But before we get into that, I'd like to pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity to share your word I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me and that um, your message would be heard. I I pray your blessing on this congregation and all who are um, worshiping you this morning. Amen. Now, I'm going to read Psalm 139. It's kind of long, but it's going to be up on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful. I know full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God! Away from me, you bloodthirsty men! They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my... Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And the very first verse says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Now, the song goes on in the next five verses to elaborate on this statement by getting a lot more specific about what exactly it is God knows about him. He says, you know when I sit and when I rise. You understand my thoughts from afar. You carefully examine when I go out and when I lie down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. You know what I'm going to say before I even say it. You know me. You know me. You know me. You know everything about me. Your knowledge of me is something greater than I can even understand. Now, any time a word or a phrase is repeated in Scripture, it's a safe bet that the author is really trying to draw your attention to something important. He's trying to emphasize whatever it is that he's saying. Well, here, the psalmist David, he's using the same Hebrew word for uh, to know, which is yade, over and over. He uses it four times in the first six verses, as well as several words that carry similar meanings of knowledge. Clearly, this is important. He's saying that God knows about him inside and out. He not only knows where the psalmist is going and what he is doing, he knows his thoughts, even to the point of knowing ahead of time what David is going to say and do. So from the very beginning of this psalm, we're made to understand that the Lord knows us more intimately than our closest companions. This isn't the only thing that David is saying at the beginning here in these first six verses. Back in verse 1, he says something that's really important. He says, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. Did you catch that word, search? Now, it implies a certain amount of effort on God's part. Not, Not that God had to work really hard to know who David was, because he's God, but that God was intentional about knowing David. Now think about it. When you're searching for something, you put your attention to the task. You focus in. You, you investigate. You search. You look really hard for the thing that you're trying to find. And when you do find it, you rejoice. It's exciting when you find your keys that you've been looking for for the last half hour, and they're in the pocket of the coat you were wearing yesterday. Now, we're intentional because we care about the things that we're searching for. We search because we want to find them, right? And God searches us because he wants to know us. Now, let me say that again. 
God wants to know us. It's a simple statement, but it's kind of incredible when you think about it. The God who made the entire universe knows you intimately because he wants to, because he cares. It's it's mind-blowing to me, and it was to David, too. He said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. But we can't stop there. I want to bring your attention to one of the implications of God's knowledge of us, which David speaks about in the next six verses of the psalm. Now, one of the major repercussions of being known by God, the Lord of all creation, is that there is nowhere that we can go that he is not. There's not a single molecule in all of the universe where God cannot be found. I am not a very well-traveled individual. I've been to a few of the 50 states, but not a majority of them. Uh, I've been to Mexico one time for a mission trip in high school. And uh, just a couple of months ago, I hiked into Canada about five feet. Um, here's a, a picture that we took just on the other side of the 49th parallel. That's that sort of little empty space through the mountain there, my photographic evidence of my illegal journey. Um, <laughs> there are so many places on this earth that I will never, ever see. But even... If I were to travel, if it were even possible to travel and visit every single inch of this planet, I still would be where God was. And his dominion doesn't only extend to the planet Earth. What does Genesis 1-1 say in the beginning? God created the heavens and the earth. And Deuteronomy 10-14 says, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. God created the heavens and the earth, and he has dominion over it and access to all of it. Now, this reminder that the psalmist gives us that God's presence is everywhere, it can be both a comfort to us, but also a caution. It's a comfort because we can be assured that wherever we are, we're always in the reach of God's guiding and protecting hand. In verse 9, David says, If I rise on the wings of the dawn... If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Now, I'm going to use an illustration here about uh, the crew of the Starship Voyager, who, in their mission to track down a group of violent Maquis rebels, were light years across the galaxy to the Delta Quadrant, uh, where they discovered it would take 75 years at maximum warp to get back to Federation space. But I kind of figured that that illustration might not jive with all of you, so I decided not to use it. Instead, I will simply say that there is no place or situation in which we may find ourselves where we cannot be reached and known and loved by God. So in our darkest and our loneliest moments, we can be reminded by this psalm that we are never truly alone because God's Spirit is with us wherever we are. There are many examples of this in Scripture. For example, God was with Abraham and Isaac on the mountain when he provided a ram in sacrifice in Isaac's place. He was with the Israelites when they crossed out of Egypt and wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. God was with Daniel as he sat in the pit filled with hungry lions 
And he was literally with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He was with the Jewish exiles who were sent home to Israel by a foreign king who didn't know anything about God after decades of living in other lands. And he was with Mary, Joseph, and the infant Jesus as they fled to Egypt to escape from King Herod. And God was with Jesus as he was beaten, bled, and died on a Roman cross. And most of us, if we think back, can probably remember at least one time in our lives when the presence of the Lord guided us and held us fast in the midst of our trouble. Though we're sure to experience trouble, there's no getting out of that, because we live in a fallen world, God is true to his promise to never leave us or forsake us. And this psalm is a reminder of that promise. This is a comforting truth. But here's the word of caution, the flip side of that truth. This is a reminder that there is nowhere in the universe where we can hide. Have you ever played hide-and-seek with a four-year-old? I'm just going to come out and say it. They are terrible hiders, right? They're really bad. They're squirmy, and they're noisy, and a lot of times they think that if you can't see them, then, or if they can't see you, then, they, then you can't see them either, right? It's kind of like when the dog does something really naughty and tries to hide under the bed but only gets their head under there. That's, that's what we do with God sometimes. At least I know I have done this. I, I believe in my heart that God knows my thoughts and my actions, but there have definitely been times when I have deceived myself into thinking that I could hide my sins from him. In reality, to God, I'm just like a four-year-old who's sitting under the dining room table covering my eyes, clearly visible to the whole world. And humans have been hiding from God since, well, from, since the beginning, as long as sin has existed. If you think back to the first time people tried to hide from God, we'll pick up that story in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. Adam and Eve tried to hide the evidence of their sin from God, but it was useless. God made them, and he knew them, and he knew that things in his perfect garden had gone terribly wrong. I think this attempt that we make to hide or to deceive God happens the most when we allow distance in our relationship with him, or when sin causes a break in that relationship. Adam and Eve sinned and tried to hide from God because they listened to another voice over the voice of the Lord. Now, when I'm not spending the time with him that I should, or when I'm letting priorities or other distractions come in instead of my spiritual life, 
It's easy to adopt that childish mentality of, if I can't see you, you can't see me. (laughs) But David says it plainly in verses 11 and 12. He says, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as a light to you. Yes, even when you're in the path of totality of a solar eclipse, God can still see you. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When we try to hide from God, the only person we're deceiving is ourselves. God knows us, and because he knows us, and because he is God, we cannot be separated from his presence. For the psalmist, these facts were a reason to worship God. In the next section of the psalm, verses 13 through David continues to elaborate more on the extent of God's knowledge of us. He breaks out in praise in response to his understanding of who God is. He marvels at God's creativity In verse 14, he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And in verses 17 and 18, David proclaims, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. David is rejoicing here because he understands that not only does God know us as we are now, But he knew us before we were even born. He knew us then because he is the one who created us. Verse 13 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And in verses 15 and 16, the psalmist states, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. As a hobby, when I'm not in school, I enjoy quilting. I like to take a bunch of random pieces of fabric and sew them together to make a beautiful pattern. When I'm working on a quilt, my hands touch every single piece of fabric, and I'm familiar with every seam. I love to watch the quilt go from a of unconnected pieces of color into something like that. Every quilt that I make is a labor of love, and I make each one with a purpose in mind. The creative process is usually like this, right? We pour our imagination and our heart and our soul into the things that we create, and we care about the finished product. We can understand from this psalm that God poured his creative efforts in us, and he cares about the results. His hands were in every part of our creation, and he is familiar with every freckle and eyelash. His creation of us and his care for us is wonderful, and it should inspire awe and praise just like it did for David. Now, so far, this psalm flowed along pretty nicely, right? We've been introduced to the idea that God knows us intimately, that he made us, and that his knowledge of us 
means that there's nowhere we can go to escape his presence. Now, that being the case, the next four verses, to me, seem a little jarring. At first glance, it seemed um, kind of totally unconnected to this exclamation of love and praise for the Creator. Verses 19 through 20 say, If only you would slay the wicked, O God. From me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them, and my enemies. Tempting to just leave this part out. Just stick with the warm and fuzzy bits, the parts that, that we like to think about and think about, and just kind of rub, rub this out, sweep it under the rug. Because we're taught to love our enemies, right? To pray for those who persecute us. So how do we reconcile these verses with the rest? Well, commentators suggest that these verses might actually be the key to understanding the context of this entire psalm. If you think about it, this psalm, which was written by David, could have been written at any number of times throughout his life and his reign as king when he was surrounded by enemies who were wicked and bloodthirsty and who hated God. And David's knowledge that no matter what happened to him, no matter where he went, he would not be outside the reach of God's guidance and protection would have been a source of great comfort for David and also a source of comfort for the people of Israel. And this knowledge is a comfort to us as well. This world is becoming increasingly hostile, especially to followers of Christ. And scripture seems to indicate that it will get worse before it gets better. But we can be confident that no matter where we go or what happens to us, we have a creator who knows us and cares for us. Now David, at the end of this psalm, has some language that is very similar to how he began. He says to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. However, there is a subtle difference here. In the beginning of the psalm, David is acknowledging that God has already searched him and knows him. And at the end, his language is not uh, acknowledging, but rather pleading. He's asking God to continue to search him out even when he sins and to lead him and guide him as well. So let's talk about the, uh, the so what of this psalm. You've heard me talk repeatedly about God's creation of us, his intimate knowledge of our thoughts and our actions, and it means that he knows every dirty, ugly, hurtful, sinful thing that we have ever thought or said or done. And there's nowhere in all the universe that we can go to hide from him or his righteous judgment. You also heard me talk about God's love and his care and his guidance for those who he has created. And this love extends all the way to God's act of providing a way for us sinners to be reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus. Listen to the words of Romans 5, 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were still in the camp of those wicked, bloodthirsty adversaries that David is railing against in Psalm 139, God loved us enough to die for us. This truth is repeated throughout Scripture. Think of John 3.16, you all know it. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How about 1 John 4, 9 through 10? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Think back and remember the last verse of this psalm. David says, See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to tell you this morning that the way of Christ is that everlasting way. I recognize that most of you here this morning are already believers. You're already walking in the way everlasting. And I hope that this message about God's knowledge of you and his care for you is a reminder and an encouragement and that your response is one of praise and glorifying God, especially as you face challenges and are tempted by your circumstances to wonder, where is God? But if you are sitting here this morning and you're realizing that you haven't been following Christ, perhaps that you've walked away from him, I want to offer you an opportunity to be reconciled to him, to acknowledge to God that you have not been walking in the everlasting way but that you want to be, to admit that you have been living as an enemy of God, and to say that you believe that because he loves you, God sent his son Jesus to die for you so that you can live through him. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Because God knows you. He made you. He formed you in your mother's womb. And he loves you. He's waiting for you to invite him in. If you do this, or if you want to learn more about what it means to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus, I want you to come talk to me after the service today. I want to rejoice with you, and I want to help you in your next steps of following Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you because your works are wonderful, and we thank you that your presence is everywhere and that you know us better than we know ourselves. I ask, Lord, that this morning you would be comforting and challenging each one of us and reminding us that you know us, that you made us, and that you love us. We love you, Lord, and we praise you this morning.
Amen.